Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I always had in my mind this, I always had this like next. So, so I, I, I was always able to envision, okay, as soon as I get to this spot, the bullshit in my head is going to leave. Like as soon as this happens, it's all going to go away. I'm going to feel really confident as a writer. And, and, and I've actually reached all of those points. <laughs> and all that happens is the bullshit in my head shifts into some new story. That's it. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. It just changes. That's a shapeshifter. And so that's, what, that's where I am now. And that's how I maintain it, is that I've made peace with the fact that there will be a part of my brain that's always chattering on about how I'm an imposter and I'm not good enough and I'm going to make people upset and you should probably just go hide in a corner, whatever. You know, it's so boring. It's boring. But I always get back to, am I writing what I want to be writing in a way that I want to be writing it? And I just kind of trust that that's all I've got. That's what I've got to give the world. It's either going to succeed or not. It's people are going to like it or they're not, but that's what I have. So I'm just going to focus on being the best writer I can and being telling the truth as accurately as I can as I can. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Janelle, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. How are you? I am fantastic. And it is really cool to have you back here. Uh, you know, it's exciting to have you back here for so many reasons. I mean, you are one of the first probably 20 interviews that we did um, right after we changed the name of the show to Unmistakable Creative. Uh, and uh, of course, you're actually one of the profiles that uh, is featured in my upcoming book, Unmistakable Why Only is Better Than Best. And uh, I wanted to bring you back because uh, in my mind, you really, in, in so many ways, as a writer, uh, you know, with the voice that you have, define unmistakable, uh, especially, you know, anybody who has a blog with the tagline, the fight against meaningful feeding meaningful parenting advice is somebody <laughs> who I am drawn to for numerous reasons. Uh, but before we get there um, and we start getting into all of that, I want to ask you uh, what early life experience or childhood memory uh, do you think planted the seed for what you have ended up doing with your life and your work as a writer? Oh, let's see. That's a big question. You always start right with the, <laughs> with the big ones. There's no easing in with stringy. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think, um, I think there was a couple things. I mean, part of it was that I had, my mom was kind of a, a nomad, um, and type who, and, and she was kind of, she used to just do things like, and, and now that I'm a mother, I kind of realize how sort of crazy that is. Like, for example, she would, she would just say like, we would get a tax return check or something. You know, we didn't have much money. And, um, she'd get a little money and she'd be like, we're going to go camping. And we would pack up our car 
And we would just go up the coast of California and Oregon and Washington. And one time we went all the way to British Columbia and we would just camp along the way with no reservations. I mean, we would just figure it out. And, um, I realize, you know, I realize now that that's, that was a pretty remarkable thing to do with a couple kids and, and very little money. And, and sometimes we'd break down. And one time we, our car broke down in Las Vegas and she played, she played the nickel slot machines to, to get us buffets to eat for a couple days till the car could get, so we, till we could get some money to get home. And, and it was a kind of all these adventures that, that didn't make a lot of sense. And what I learned from her is that you just do you just do what what you want to do and you and when things come up in your life you just you just take care of them and you keep going and i think that um i'm not sure exactly how that relates to me as a writer but i but i do know that that's what what gave me the ability to get started <laughs> do, do you know what i mean yeah yeah for I, sure. I wanted to write and so i wrote because that's what you do you just do the things that are in you whether or not they make sense whether or not people are going to understand whether or not it's going to end in disaster. You just kind of do it. And I fully learned that from my mom. Why do you think so many people are resistant to doing that thing? Uh, you know, I mean, part of what I have always appreciated, like, I mean, reading mom blogs is the last thing in the world that I want to do as a single guy. Yeah, me too, usually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the thing is that there's something raw and honest and beautiful about the way you write, and, and that's what has drawn me to your work. Um, but what really, I think the question is that thing that you want to do, uh, when you want to do it, like, I think people have that inside of them and so many people are resistant to doing it. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, just based on, on the life experience that you've had, what causes that? Because you can't see the path because you can't see whether or not it's going to work. And we hate, we hate that. We hate not knowing we hate not being able to see whether or not our efforts are going to get us anywhere because they may not. Right. I mean, let's be honest. We might sit and work and, and write and write and write and write and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that nothing happening is more terrifying than not trying. And I think that that's kind of the shift that happens that when we, when we do actually start doing that thing is that we say, you know what? I don't care if it ends in nothing. I would rather have the failure than this feeling of not doing the thing I want to do. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. It makes plenty of sense. And I, I think, and I think that that's just not really what we're taught to do, right? We're not taught to, and I don't, I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, Serena, like uh -huh. why are we not that, that side of ourselves, that side of us that that craves doing something for the sake of doing it, just like something creative or something interesting, kind of, you know, whether it's writing or painting or knitting or whatever, you know, baking, whatever it is that we do, that something that calls us that we're just not doing. It's like, it's not because we don't know if it's going to make us money or we don't know if it's going to work. Somehow it's not valuable to us, which is really weird, right? Because we're not really alive very long. So it seems like, it seems like, trying something for the sake of doing it just because it may add um, an interesting element to your life is would be worth our time. Right. Just, just for that. Yeah. Uh, God, uh, it's such a, a sort of deep and complicated subject because you're right. I mean, we really hate not knowing. I think the, the thing that we can't see uh at all, because when you look at what somebody has accomplished, it doesn't seem like they were a person who has had nothing and like a blank slate and a complete unknown. But, you know, I look back at seven years, 700 interviews, 
uh, you know, and, and I look back at all the people that I interviewed and, and in my mind, when I'm hearing you say that, I'm thinking, wow, everybody literally starts with a blank slate with not knowing whether what they're going to do or what they're going to try is going to have a positive outcome. And that goes from published authors to no name bloggers to billionaires. Yes. And I think that it's very hard for us to see that because you don't see that part of it at all. Like nobody witnesses that part of somebody's working process. Completely. Completely. And yes, that's exactly right. And that's what I try to tell um, writers that I work with is that we ha- that's why we have to get to the point where we are not, we're not in the business of outcomes, that we're doing the process because the process itself is what's rewarding, that the creative work itself is enough to keep us going. Just, just the experiment, like we just get curious about it, right? Rather than getting kind of, I mean, you know, of course, there's always those moments of resentment when you're like, when am I going to get mine? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Like, we're all human. You know, yeah. when is the work going to pay off? But, and obviously, you know, it isn't that much. There's a lot of not fun in trying to earn money and support yourself while doing this other project that you're praying to God will work someday. But, um, but yeah, it, it, and it is that blank slate that's terrifying. And I, and I think it's combined, that sort of unknown and the fear of the unknown combined with the fact that we don't really value creative work just for the sake of the work itself results in a lot of giving up or not starting, you know? I think it also results in creating things that you don't really want to see exist in the world. That's another thing that comes from that. I mean, giving up, not starting and doing work that you don't truly care about. uh, Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Three things that I've done throughout this process at certain moments. Right. So you mentioned something that I I don't want to let go of because I think there's a thread there. um, And that is the idea of those little moments of resentment. Like, when am I going to get mine? Oh, yeah. Uh, And, you know, as somebody who spent the better part of seven years telling other people's stories, it's really hard not to think that uh, frequently, you know, because my entire perception of the world is actually shaped on people that I interview. It's like a very, like one of my mentors said, he said, that's an incredibly warped perspective on the world because you're not seeing uh, anything other than sort of the craziest high achievers imaginable. Right. He's right. Like, you're getting the last, you're getting the last, you're getting the, yeah, you're getting the apex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that sort of moment of resentment, like how do you deal with that? Um, how do you, how do you put it to rest more importantly? Like, I, I think I've finally gotten over it, but that's, you know, here's the thing I can say I've gotten over it, but I can tell you somebody who is listening is like, yeah, Srini, that's easy for you to say. You just got to, you know, to write a book with a major publisher. Right. Um, it's, it's much easier to say it standing on this side than to believe it standing on the other side of it. So I want to hear what you have to say about that. Well, I mean, so I started writing my blog with, um, so I had two children and then I had a, and a baby. So I had three total and I was working almost full time, I think 30 hours a week, um, at this law firm and I was in graduate school. So three kids, grad school working. Um, and my husband is an iron worker. He works mostly in San Francisco, which is about a couple hours from us. And so it really made no sense for me to start this blog. And I did it because I had this burning question and I couldn't find anybody saying what I wanted to read about motherhood. So I just couldn't take it anymore. And I started writing, even though it made no sense, but it was just a hobby. It was, I never had a single expectation and thank God, because, uh, I would have quit really soon if I had some sort of expectation of fame or money or something. Um, 
And so that worked really well for about a year or two. <laughs> right? Uh. Because at first we start out like I started out like, oh, I'm just writing for me. This is so much fun. I had, you know, I had years of topics banked in my mind, you know, all the things that pissed me off about. I mean, I spent the first year just writing about things that pissed me off <laughs> about all the bullshit I read in the media and all the stuff about motherhood, all this preciousness, you know. And um so but then after about a year, right, so now I'm writing after the kids go to bed, I'm writing in these little one-hour windows, and nobody's reading it, and that's fine. And and then about year two, though, okay, well, now I've been writing for two years, and it's still nobody reads it. And, and then the questions start coming in. You know, why am I doing this? What What is the fucking point of this work? I mean, I'm, I'm putting this work in, and I start caring. You know, I start caring, and then I start comparing. I start <laughs> reading these other blogs. And I'm, I'm reading these blogs, and I'm going, you know, this woman has – 90 million Twitter followers and she's been writing half the time and her writing sucks. And <laughs> she just got a book deal. What the hell is this? You know, and you start getting resentment. You start yeah. getting that. What about me? When am I going to get mine? And, um, and what I, and then I would start comparing the way I wrote with the way she wrote and the way they wrote, right? Like the capital, they, the ones that, the ones that were rocketed into fame and I looked at what they said and the way they worded things and the way they did things. And I just thought, you know what? I can't do it. This is, and then I'd think, well, I should be like them. You know, I should write like them or I should tone it down. I mean, I, you know, I know you've read my stuff. My sense of humor is it offends people a lot and I'm really irreverent and I swear. And I, um, I say things a very, you know, I say things the way I, I want to say them. And, and I would think, well, if, you know, Janelle, if you just tone it down, you'd be a lot more successful. But I just couldn't do it. I had other people tell me the same thing. Well, you're just too, you're just too edgy. You're just sweet. You know, I just do this. You're just that. And then I would just get back to the fact that I had rather fail than be something I'm not. And I would be okay with that. And I would just say, you know what, Janelle, you're writing for the woman who wrote you last week and said, thank you so much for writing this. You keep me going. You know, I wish, I wish, I wish I would have found you 20 years ago when I had my children. And every week, Serena, there'd be one person, maybe two people who would message me or write me a Facebook comment that kept me going. And I would focus on them. So I focus, so I would, I would consciously deflect away from the ego comparison wheel <laughs> and focus on the few people who I felt like were really affected by my writing. And I would say, well, I'm writing for them. And I would just let that be enough. Hmm. How have you maintained that uh, as you have grown uh, in presence and stature? I mean, at, the, at this point, you have a pretty substantial Facebook fan base. Like, I, I know because I, I follow your work. Like, it's grown significantly since that point. Right. Um, I, you know, it's funny because I think it's easier to do that when you have, you know, nothing to lose. You know, you totally. get to a point where you're like, oh, wow, suddenly all this shit matters. Uh, even though it doesn't, right? But you feel like you have so much more at stake at a certain point. Uh, so I'm curious, yeah. you know, have you have you like have you struggled to maintain that perspective uh, as you know your presence has become bigger? Because I know that I have. Absolutely, I have never felt quite as I felt more paralyzed. The only time I felt sometimes I go through these phases where I feel like I can't, I just can't write anything, and I hate everything I write. And, <laughs> yeah, and I'm just like everything I try to write, just it just comes across as. You know, I just want to, I hate it. And uh, so I usually just end up writing, you know, thousands of words that week. And I publish something just because I can't take it anymore. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Because then people have their expectations, right? Like uh -huh. it, when you're writing to nobody, the story is, 
nobody's reading me. What is the point of this? When you're writing to thousands of people, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to say something wrong They're, I'm not going to be good enough, you know? And, and that, yeah, but because everybody has expectations. So some people read me and I'm the funny, you know, I'm, I'm funny. I'm the funny, the funny girl or whatever. And then, you know, then I'll write something heartfelt and I'll get all these followers that are like, well, they, you know, they think I'm the heartfelt writer. And so no matter what I write at this point, I piss somebody off. And then, <laughs> not in a cute way. I mean, I, you know, if, I'll write something up. God, you know, I, I really liked you until you wrote this. I didn't know you were so political or I didn't know you were so this or that. And so then, and that is really what I've learned is that I always had in my mind this, I always had this like next. So, so I, I, I was always able to envision, okay, as soon as I get to this spot, the bullshit in my head is going to leave. Like as soon as this happens, it's all going to go away. I'm going to feel really confident as a writer. And, and, and I've actually reached all of those points. <laughs> and all that happens is the bullshit in my head shifts into some new story. That's it. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. It just changes. It's a shapeshifter. And so that's, what, that's where I am now. And that's how I maintain it is that I've made peace with the fact that there will be a part of my brain that's always chattering on about how I'm an imposter and I'm not good enough and I'm going to make people upset and you should probably just go hide in a corner, whatever. You know, it's so boring. It's boring. But I always get back to, am I writing what I want to be writing in a way that I want to be writing it? And I just kind of trust that that's all I've got. That's what I've got to give the world. It's either going to succeed or not. It's people are going to like it or they're not, but that's what I have. So I'm just going to focus on being the best writer I can and being telling the truth as accurately as I can, as I can, and then letting the world do with it what they will, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So did I even answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That was uh, poetic. Um, I want to ask you about one other thing. I and mean, part of what really, really appeals to me about your work is that you have been willing to say uh, what probably a lot of people are thinking, despite the amount of criticism uh, and, you know, sort of harsh feedback that comes from it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think, you know, like you said, you polarize, like you draw a line, people either love you or hate you, I think. Uh, oh, absolutely. And when yeah. they despise you, they despise you. Yes. Uh, and so I think, you know, what I want to ask about, um, which I think is important for our listeners, because there's probably a lot of new ones since you were last here is where the narrative of the fight against meaningful parenting advice comes from, because it's one of my favorite sort of stories about, you know, how you've built this. And, and, you know, what, what is it about you that enables you to kind of just say, you know what, I don't give a shit. I'm going to say whatever I want to say, uh, because that's admirable. I think a lot of people wish they could be like that in, a, you know, for a lot of people, that's like a, a drunken alter ego that right. maybe shows up once in a great while. Whereas that's just you, which is, is why I think it's so powerful. Um, so kind of, you know, walk us through, you know, where does all this come from? So where does the, where did my sort of sarcastic... Yeah, I mean, where does the whole narrative come from? Like what has informed this perspective and what is it about your life that has enabled you to say things without having so much concern for what other people are thinking? Like you're willing to say whatever you want to say without any filters, which I, I think is, is really, really brave and courageous and it leads to really fantastic work. Well, thank you. I mean, so the filter thing, I have to say I was sort of born (laughs) slightly without a filter. Um, that, that I just sort of fell into it to some extent. I mean, there's more to it obviously because, but, um, 
I never understood why people would be ashamed of the way they feel or think because it's the truth. And I didn't understand. I, I truly didn't really understand that, that the truth was, was loaded, that it was this moral that people found that, that speaking truth is, is a, is a, is a kind of a radical move in a way. Um, or not in a way it is. Uh, and I actually remember, so this is sort of a bizarre kind of random story, but I actually remember when I kind of first observed that, that I was kind of born without that filter or that, um, I remember I was in high school and it occurred to me that, well, anyway, I don't even really remember what led up to this, but I remember the moment that it occurred to me, you know, I was like really insecure. I think I was 15 or 16 and, and you know, none of the boys liked me or whatever, you know how it is. And, um, and I remember watching this group of girls, on the campus and they were acting in a way that was very different from, from the way they acted around me when it was just us, they were friends of mine and I, they were around some boys and they were acting a certain way. And I remember watching them and I remember thinking, Oh, they don't act like themselves so that the boys will like them. (laughs) And that's what you're not doing, Janelle. (laughs) And I remember thinking, that's so crazy that they do that. Like why, because why would I ever want to attract a person based on a facade? Because then I would already know that the relationship was bullshit. I mean, right out of the gate, because if I'm faking it, I'm going to attract you. And then you're going to think I'm a certain way. And then you're not going to like me for who I am. And then this relationship is never going to work. And so that's kind of how I see writing. I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to become some polished version of myself because the people I'm talking to, the people that I want to read my work are going to understand what I'm saying. And they're the only people that matter to me. I'm not interested in appealing to the masses. I'm interested in finding my people, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's how the mothering thing came about. Is that what kind of, what you want me to talk about too? Yeah, I would. Okay. So, um, the, well, the really condensed version is that I'm a recovering alcoholic and I was separated from my children from 2007 until 2009. And when I got sober, it was, so it was about seven years ago. And so I was kind so I was, I was sort of thrown back. So I had my first child at 22 and my second child about four or five years later. And both of those children, um, I was removed from both of those children for a couple of years. I was in and out of their lives. And I was very lucky to get sober and uh, not be dead. Um, And so I found myself at 31, 30, sober with these children. Um, And then at 31, my husband and I bought a house together and our family was reunited, all four of us. And I found myself sort of catapulted into motherhood. Um, Even though I'd already been a mother, it was not the same. And, um, I sort of woke up and I started walking around looking at the mothering world and I'm seeing, you know, I, so everything I saw seemed like bullshit and I couldn't find my story. I couldn't find my experience. You know, there were, there were the moms who sort of had this narrative that, 
if you just do enough research, you're going to know how to raise your kids and it's all going to be cool. You just have to, you just have to read a lot of books and, and apply what the experts say and you'll be cool. And, but I would do that. You know, I'd read all the books and I would try it and then I'd forget about it in a week or I would, you know, it wouldn't work or I wasn't able to stick with the follow through. And I thought, well, they, you know, that's a bunch of bullshit. You can't take, you know, a bunch of experts in labs can't tell me how to raise this incredibly dynamic, you know, single singular human being. That's just not, that's not going to work. And then there were these other moms who seemed like they just kind of didn't give a shit. Like they were like the cool kid moms, you know, they're like, I just drink my martinis and I don't give a fuck. And I thought, well, that's not, you know, that's not real either. Y'all, you know, you lay your head down and feel guilty as hell too. And, and then there was, and then there's this, this like precious story about all oh, motherhood is everything I've ever wanted. And I find it so infinitely fulfilling. And that was definitely not my experience. I mean, I, there was, I was always stuck in this weird gray area of, I love being a mother. I'm so grateful for these kids, but, but I'm also not infinitely fulfilled by them. And I, I want to pursue other areas of my life and my, I've never felt erased by motherhood. I've never, I never felt like I disintegrated into, you know, play dates and sippy cups and carpools being enough. And, and I'm not knocking that at all. It's just my experience that I was never felt fulfilled by that. I've always felt like I'm a person and I happen to be a mother, but first and foremost, I'm an individual and I'm not defined by, you know, the fact that I have these children um, and I just couldn't find anybody writing that, Srini. I couldn't find anybody letting that gray area exist where I, I would lay down my life for my kids and sometimes I want to throw myself in front of a bus. Like, <laughs> I am infinitely fascinated by you and completely bored by you I, at the same time. Like, I don't want to hear more kid chatter. I want to talk about something else. At the same time so incredibly grateful to be reunited with my family. And I just couldn't take it anymore. Cause I thought there, I just wanted to know if there are other mothers like me, that's it. I didn't, you know, I was okay if there weren't, if I was the freak on earth and there was just one of me, that's fine. But I wanted to know if there were other women who felt like I did mothers, mothers, not all women are mothers. So I want to know if there were other mothers. And so I decided that I was going to write the absolute truth of my experience and it was okay. I, it, no matter how hypocritical no matter how um, irreverent or offensive, I was going to say the things that I thought about motherhood in an unfiltered way to achieve the experiment, right? To test my hypothesis, which was, you know, everybody's full of shit, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and the results were blew my mind. Yeah. So that's how it started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. All right. Lots of questions come from this. Um, you know, it's interesting to, to listen to you talk about how we put on this facade for the world in the hopes that they will like who we are. And right. yet what we're get, trying to get them to like is the facade. And I, I think in my mind, um, that starts really early in life. I mean, you mentioned high school. And yes. I, I think we make choices like that throughout our lives until what we are mired in are labels and stories and masks. And in my mind, and, and you know, I wrote this in my book, and I believe it even more now than when I wrote it, uh, is that half the, the, the spiritual journey of adulthood is unraveling all this bullshit to get us back to that sort of pure place that we were at uh, in our childhood or before all of these sort of things were kind of dumped on us uh, from the world and the experiences around us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, the other question. So, uh, you know, like, you know, we spoke quite a bit about sort of your past and, and the alcoholism and being separated from uh, children in our previous interview. Uh, I'm curious, what has been the impact uh, on the relationship that you have with your kids uh, as a byproduct of that experience? And then the other is, I mean, that's that's a really, really dark chapter to go through. So this is probably going to end up being three questions in one, but you should be used to that by now. So, uh, so you know, it, it's a really, really dark period in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, question, you know, so if somebody is in a moment like that, what would you tell them? And then the third one, which I've asked on a number of interviews, and this has been, uh, for some reason, of particular interest to me because, you know, lots of situations uh, have come up over the last year that have required a lot of resilience and, and faith. Um, do you think that the ability to develop the kind of resilience and the grit that you have is the byproduct of having gone through the experiences that you have? So I realize three questions. So feel free to answer for as long as you want. What was the first one, though? So, I missed the first one. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, so the first one uh, I think was really more of a comment um, okay. about sort of layers and, and masks and, and you know how you let go of all of that. 
Um, the second one was the the second one was uh, so the first one. What is the impact that this uh, separation has had on your relationship with your children? Okay, so let's start. Um, well, it, I, I think that um, the the very the very deepest vein of impact is that there is never a day that passes that I'm not extremely grateful for the, what my life looks like. Um, you know, I, maybe, maybe that's a little exaggeration. Maybe I forget sometimes, but there aren't, you know, there, you know, everybody has days where you're like, is this really it? Is this really (laughs) it? Um, but I always go back to remembering that people like me don't end up like this. And I do a lot of work with other alcoholics to remember that on a regular basis. Um, that if I go back to drinking, you know, that that's it for me. And I spend a lot of time with, um, people who were form, you know, recently living on the streets and people who are on their way to prison, um, for alcohol and drug related crimes. And I, I try to give back what was given to me, um, in terms of freedom from this, this condition. And that goes into my family a lot, right? Because I don't, no matter how frustrated I get, or no matter how tired I get, I always end up at, you know, thank God. And, and the other thing that I think um, has flowed into my family because of this and my relationship with my children is that the gig is up in terms of uh, their mother's imperfection. (laughs) You know, I don't have, I can't hide behind some structure of perfection or infinite reliability as a mother. And I don't try because I am a very, I am a broken person and I really messed up in incredibly non-cute ways. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no way to spin alcoholism and drug addiction and, and as a mother and being separated from your children into something noble or something, you know, not horrifyingly sad and destructive and painful. And so I don't pretend with my kids. I don't give them more than they can handle in terms of, you know, I don't like tell them about all these things, but I also come at them from a very real place and I will apologize and I will tell them when I'm wrong and I treat them. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is I think that there's a narrative in the world that once we have children, we become these incredibly glowing version of ourselves. And I think that sometimes carries into the way we parent where we act like we have to pretend to be perfect to get our kids respect so that we can discipline them when they're teenagers. And, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, if we aren't perfect, what's going to happen to our kids? And I've been set free from that because everybody knows I'm not perfect. That's, that's, that's out of the bag. So I don't pretend with my kids. And I, I am very honest with them when I, when I screw up and when I'm, when I'm weak and when I blow it. And so we have an extremely honest household. And, um, in fact, I was really kind of delighted the other day. My, my oldest child is, is almost 15. And, and she said, we were driving to school the other day and she was talking about some stuff. And she said, you know, mom, I don't think, I don't think other families are like ours. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, 
you know, we talk about everything in this family. And I tell you things because I know you're not going to freak out. And I thought that was really cool. She said, I don't think my friends talk to their moms the way I talk to you. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. So maybe I'm flattering myself. But, um, but I think that, that our family has just sort of the walls have already been torn down. And we're all really happy to be together. And there's an, an honesty and realness I know is what, is what saved my life. And so that's what I keep going. You know, I, I can't pretend things. Yeah. So, uh, what was question two? Question two <laughs> question was, two. you managed to navigate, you know, a, an incredibly dark period of your life. I mean, something that I can't even fathom. And, uh, you know, I dedicated an entire chapter in the book to dealing with things like this, uh, because I think it's tremendously important. I mean, like somebody listening to this is probably going through something dark that you and I can't fathom. And and maybe it's not even dark by any standards, you know, like comparing our grief to other people's, I've realized is kind of bullshit uh, because it is what it is. Like, you know, one of my mentors said, you know, he's like, it's the worst thing in the world because it's happening to you. Totally. Um, But, you know, what, what would you say to them having had the perspective that you have? Well, at the risk of sounding kind of woo woo, um, which, you know, I hate. I (laughs) You and me both. Um, I will say what I have learned, which is that, um, everything we need is within us. And, um, I would tell that to the person who is suffering that they may not, you may not be able to see it right now and you may not be able to find it or even define it, but the solutions to our problems are not external. And I spent a lot of years searching for, peace and meaning outside of myself. And I couldn't find it. And the more I couldn't find it, the more I drank um, in search of that. And what I learned was everything I need is within and I have access to that. Um, But the path to finding that, of course, is each of ours on our own, right? Mm. (laughs) That's the bitch. (laughs) (laughs) That's the bad part um, is that there, I don't think there's any way to, 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 to um to teach that and but i do think that life gives us what we need to to learn that process to learn that to learn that we are whole already and we we've got what we need um we just have to rely on it mm-hmm. and i and for me it was trying a million other things and then having them all fail and then ending up at well, I guess if this is if this is it, if this is my only chance at staying alive and having a decent, you know, a relatively decent life, I guess I'm just going to have to rely on whatever it is inside of me and and hope it's enough. So, um, yeah, I would also say look for the teachers <laughs> because my life was saved by teachers, people who were willing to remind me of who and what I am, even through my bullshit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I think, I mean, I think that the universe always hands us what we need to to grow and to get better. And <clears throat> if we get broken enough, we'll start listening. You know, that's what happened to me, at least. I thought I knew everything. And my life started changing when I realized I didn't know shit. And I started listening to other people. And I started um, letting go of some of the ideas I had about everything, frankly. Okay. The third question uh, is, does this kind of resilience only come about from having gone through difficult times? Because 
like, you know, and I'm wondering if I'm just asking this question because I'm trying to find somebody to say no, <laughs> because right. there's not one person who has yet, which is making me think maybe it's just a bullshit loaded question. Uh, but based on, on kind of your perspective, what do you think? Like, is it, do you only gain the kind of strength that you do from going through something that breaks you? I mean, I would say yes, because I feel like without the impetus, why, why would we change? I mean, why do we do anything? Right. I mean, when we're comfortable, we're comfortable. So why would we get uncomfortable? (laughs) Just because for me, all of the, the biggest change in my life has come from really, you know, from periods of deep, deeply uncomfortable times. Right. So, um, and I don't know if we pursue that discomfort and, and having our world kind of shattered on purpose. Yeah. Because why would we? It kind of goes against. But at the same time, as you say, pain is relative. So, you know, um, I, I don't think, although I don't think that people have to be utterly shattered to, <laughs> to you know, to have the kind of bullshit stripped away and to start living in a way that more closely aligns with who they are and what they want and what their, what, what truth is to them. But, but I do think that it's the struggle and the willingness to be honest in that struggle and not run from it that results in the resilience. I, yeah, I think you do have to kind of be put through the ringer to get perspective. Yeah. I, unfortunately I think that that's true. I, I don't know if you've heard of this. Uh, it's, it's interesting because it, it's in one of uh, you know our, our former guest Patty Dye's books. Uh, I think it's either Life Is a Verb or one of our other books about the you know it's about the geography of loss. Mm-hmm. And she talks about this Japanese uh, you know art form. It's a form of pottery. And what happens is the pots are cracked and then put back together again, but the cracks are sealed with gold paint, and so they end up looking much more beautiful after they've been broken. Wow. Uh, which is, you know, like, and I remember I'd heard that, you know, before, and I remember thinking, I was like, wow, that is, it, it's really sort of such a beautiful sort of way of looking at uh, some of our, our most difficult and dark things that happen. And you know, I think that we're deluding ourselves. This is, you know, I realized I'd gotten to a point where I'm like, I'm living in a fucking delusional world if I think nothing bad is ever going to happen. Oh. Like, it's just not going, like, you, you don't go through life like that. It's not possible. no. no. Right. And, and that's the thing is that, you know, pain is relative and what my pain is. I don't think that people have to be utterly leveled to have, but I do think that people have to be, have the willingness to face what's happening directly, you Mm -hmm. know, to not run from, to get out of the delusion, like what you said. Yeah. Well, let's do this. This is getting a little depressing. So let's shift gears. Totally. Uh, I want to start talking about voice in particular, which is why I wanted to bring you back. Um, I mean, you've, you've kind of touched on some of it by talking about truth and honesty. Uh, but I mean, like I said, your voice is unmistakable. I could, I, I could probably read one thing you wrote and say, okay, the only person who would have written that is Janelle. <laughs> and uh, the thing that's interesting to me is, is looking back at sort of how it's been developed. And so maybe let's do this because I know you've, you've referenced them in our previous interviews, but I want to start there again because it was such a fascinating look. Um, let's talk about artistic influences. Um, the people that have shaped your perspective and informed your voice and how you write. Uh, you know, I know there have been musicians. I know there have been writers. So talk to me about some of that. And then talk to me about how people find those influences in their life. Um, well, let's see. The, the writers that really have 
blown me away. Um, but I, you know, I, well, okay. So I have a, I have a master's and BA in English. So I've read a lot, but the, the really early influences, um, the writers that I read where I was just going, holy shit, were definitely, uh, Hemingway. And with him, it was how sparse his language is. I mean, he just, there's so little embellishment and, um, and he, he repeats words and, and the way that he writes is just, and, and he's one of those two where it's completely, he's completely polarizing, right? People either love him or hate him. But for me, it was the way he said things. Um, he just let them be what they are. And, and it, it became clear later. I didn't realize that I was reading this when I was, you know, 12 or 13, but later after I've sort of studied and read other things about Hemingway, he, he, he was trying with all of his might as a writer to, to get to the truth of what he was describing. Like he wanted the moment itself to come to be enough without the elaboration of the, all the adjectives and adverbs and all the crap we add to our writing, thinking we're sounding more clever and more profound when really we're just getting, you know, we're just getting clunky. We're just making our reader do a bunch of work. And we're, we're, we're actually, you know, getting away from the power of the moment itself. You know, if he's describing fishing or the forest or something, trying to get to the truth of what it's like to stand in a forest is such a more powerful exercise as a writer than trying to describe the forest beautifully. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and then of course, Jerry Garcia, I mean, his music, Bob Dylan, a lot of music when I was a kid, we listened to a lot of music and um, the power of the ability to just evoke this emotion in you where you, it, it resonates in your bones, right? Like you, you listen to the song, you listen to these words and you don't even really understand what they're saying, but you, but you know what they're saying. You, you know it because you, it's hitting you at some level that maybe you didn't even know existed. And those, that, and then of course, and then later on it was Toni Morrison and David Sedaris and, um, Toni Morrison. Holy shit. Right. Uh, and so, that I think has kind of become the drive for if, if I had to kind of embody what I'm trying to do with my writing, it, it is to, it is to get to the truth of the moment and to um, affect people to resonate with people on, on that sort of deep, deep human level that may or may not be conscious. Right. It's that, that deep where we just connect. We go, I know that I know what they're saying and I don't even know why I know it. Um, and in terms of finding those influences, just read what you like. <laughs> yeah. Just read what you love and don't care what other people think about it, right? Just read what you love. And, um, But I mean, I think that, that more than anything, I developed my voice by writing for years and years and years and years to no audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think consuming is huge, mm-hmm. but I think uh, practice is even more powerful. I would have to agree. Yeah. (laughs) So as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, our new book, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best, comes out next week. And if you yourself have aspirations of writing a book, it actually starts with building an online presence of some sort, like a website or a blog. In fact, learning to build a website is probably one of those skills that will always be useful no matter what you do with your life and career. And our friends at HostGator can help you to get started with 30% off their hosting packages and a super easy to use website builder. So visit hostgator.com slash creative and use the promo code creative for 30% off all of their hosting packages. 
one of the things that comes from that, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I touched on this in, in the book a little bit. Um, you know, I talked about this idea that Austin Kleon has coined, you know, of stealing like an artist, uh, mm-hmm. of borrowing from other people. But part of what I see and, and part of where I see people challenged, um, which really kind of was, you know, what led to the ethos of Unmistakable as, as a book um, was that people would see people that they admire or look up to uh, and in the attempt to model, they would end up mimicking. Yes. And it drove me crazy. Yes, yeah, terrible. Uh, it's, it's actually, you know, if, it, you know, one of the number one reasons I turn down people uh, for being guests on the show is very much that. Um, if I feel like, okay, I've seen this before. Um, right. It looks like something else I've seen a hundred times. I am really curious how you borrow from multiple art forms and at the same time make it your own. Well, I don't consciously borrow from art forms. Mm-hmm. Um, I just consume what I love and know that it will influence my brain. <laughs> Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, like, you know, if you read a boatload of, of an author, your brain is making connections and language connections, and it's starting to learn rhythms, and it's starting to learn new ways to form senses. I mean, for example, you read, um, you read like Virginia Woolf. I don't adore Virginia Woolf, but she has some of the most – poetic. I mean, her sentences can be a paragraph long and they just flow, right? So you learn about rhythm. You learn about how to combine phrases. You learn, you know, and then you learn Hemingway. You read Hemingway. It's like you write incredibly sparse sentences. You write short sentences and, you know, you read some Bukowski and, and you learn about voice and character. And so I'm not consciously going, you know, Hey, I'm going to go read some Hemingway so I can write sparse narrative. I, but, um, so I just try to consume a ton and and know that that will influence my work. Um, wait, what was the second part of what you asked? I'm sorry. No, that, I think that's it. That How do you make it your own? How do you oh, take that so and make it your own? The way I make it my own is that I write the way I want it to be written. And and that is so is so simple, Srini, that that it's excruciating. But <laughs> but when it the way it plays out is that when we sit down to write, we just write it like we want to say it. And it's like so hard. <laughs> so in other words, what that looks like is if we think it's funny, yeah. we say it. We, th- we say it in a way that we think it's funny. If we think it's, if we think it's you know, messed up, we write it, we write it with all the passion that we think you know, that, that we want to write it with. And we write it in the voice. And I tell people to write as if they're writing to their best friend. Like if they're writing an email to their best friend. And you know, Stephen King says you write with the door shut and you rewrite with the door open. Uh-huh. So the first draft, I mean, the first thing we produce should be written for ourselves. And that's it. We should forget about the audience. And that is so hard to do. And yet that's what gives our writing power. I love that. You know, it's, it's funny. You said, you know, write letters like you're writing with a best friend. It took me back to a memory uh, of college. You know, I would, when I would I'd try to avoid studying, I would send these really long emails to one of my best friends from college Right. And it was so weird because I was thinking, wow, that, that believe it or not, is where the seed for this whole writing thing got planted. Um, it was one of the many seeds, but that was a big one. And, you know, I, I can only connect that now to almost 20 years later. Right. Because, because the thing is, is people think, it's, uh, people think that vulnerability, right, is, is like writing these really deep, cathartic things, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, if I share... If I share about my alcoholism, you know, I'm being super vulnerable. And okay, to an extent that that's true. Okay, okay, fine. Like, all right, sure. That's that's vulnerable. But to me, the times that I feel the most laid bare are when I'm trying to be funny. <laughs> right? Like if I write something that I think is really funny, 
I immediately, because, because why? Because, because what if nobody else thinks it's funny? I mean, I write about alcoholism. Sure. People are going to be mean to me, but it's a standard kind of, right? Like, you know, people are going to say you're a loser. You don't deserve your kids, whatever. People are going to mis- misunderstand me. And those are kind of the standard, you know, that's what we get when we put right in the world. But for me, the real vulnerability is when I let my personality onto the page because that's what the shell is gone, right? There's no, that's when I'm just, I'm putting myself out there and hoping that they think I'm funny. They're hoping that they, I'm hoping they like me. And to me, but that is also where all of the power comes because that's how we attract other people who think that's funny. Do you know what I mean? Like if we, if I think something's really strange, it's funny. And I go, Oh, nobody else is going to think that's funny. I can't say this. And I go, ah, well, fuck it. And I write it anyway. And I publish it. Other people start reading that and they go, Oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't know other people thought that was funny. And they read it and a connection is built. And that's what gives our writing power because we become human. We become, our personalities are on the page and other people recognize us. And they recognize themselves and they feel seen and they feel heard. And then we as writers feel seen and heard and it keeps us going. But I think what happens instead is that we, we sit on, we, we open our computers and we, we're about to write and we go, okay, how do I want to present myself? How do I want to present myself to be safe? Because if we create a persona, we create this sort of shell, we know that the world is going to bump up against that shell instead of us. And, and then our writing loses power. You know? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, um, sorry, I kind of took that no, off. No, that was phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> I want to re- start wrapping things up, but I want to ask, um, you, you know, you brought up practice earlier. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what is your sort of daily practice ritual habit system look like for writing and producing work now or yeah. before now? Yeah. Now is fine. Okay. So, well now about a year ago, so I've been teaching, I was teaching community college, uh, and English at local this local state school for um, a few years. And then about a year ago, I decided that I was either going to be a writer or not. And I quit teaching and I rented a little, at least a little office. And now I write um, in my office. <laughs> so I write, I try to write every day. I don't really write on the weekends, but I try to write every work day. And um, I have a few projects I'm working on, but I've had to learn when my creative time is, when my brain is more inter- is most interested in doing that sort of that creative work, um, which for me oddly is the afternoons. I thought I always thought it was the morning, but through looking at the pattern of my life, I realized I was wrong. And so what I do is I block everything down from about one to three. And I even got an app that shuts down the internet because I have no self-control. Um, and I just write. I try to, I try to write a certain number of words. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm driven by the number. So, I'll, for example, I'll, I need to write 1,500 words on this project. And I will write until I've written those 1,500 words. So I'm kind of methodical about it. I'm not super romantic about it. I think you and I share that in common. Yeah, um, that that's that's kind of my whole thing is is just a system because it's the only thing I can depend on. Totally. Uh, and if I relied on inspiration, I'd never write a goddamn thing. No, that's not true. <laughs> I, right. I would write like once or twice a month. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not enough to um, have a writing career. Yeah. But and I've always been that way. Even when I started the blog, I um, even when it, you know, when I had, you know, no, I was doing other work and had kids and, you know, really young kids and babies and stuff. 
I decided I was going to write two blog posts a week, no matter what. And, and I absolutely would not waver on that. So if it was Sunday afternoon, it was Sunday evening at 11 PM and I didn't have my second blog post in, I would write it. Even if it was crap, you know, it meant more to me to hit that goal and to keep on that path. You know, obviously you screw up sometimes, you know, but, um, you always have to get on and get back on and, I firmly believe that if people start writing on a regular basis for multiple years, interesting things will start happening to them. I really believe that. Yeah. Well, I, 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 (laughs) you don't have to convince me of that. Yeah. But it's, but that's, but that's not very, you know, it's not very romantic. So I think people like, we want to start writing and be launched into fame and wealth and yeah. Or, you know, and yeah. And, um, but I feel like just opening that, just cracking that window a tiny bit and letting that creative work come in and making it and looking at it like a responsibility rather than just this sort of wee fun little thing we do and, and looking at it as a responsibility and a job in a way. It's strange, right? It's so weird, but that's where the magic lies. It's so bizarre. I never would have, I never would have understood that. I never would have expected that. That just the act of committing myself to a writing practice and publishing that writing on a regular basis for multiple years would result in amazing things or even interesting things. Yeah, but it yes. does. All right. So one last question uh, to wrap things up. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, well, I think it is the voice. I mean, I think it is when you see somebody who's saying something in a way that they want to say it. And in, even if it's polarizing, even if it's wrong, you know, I mean, that's a big part of it is a willingness to be wrong. The willingness to put something out knowing that, you know, knowing that you don't know what you don't know, which is really hard. You know, I mean, we can't be more than we are. We can't know more than we know at this very moment that we're writing the words. And, um, And so when I see somebody willing to just say it, just say it, I am drawn to that, whether or not I agree with them. And you'll notice that often, sometimes people's best writing is like some sort of off the cuff Facebook post or something where there's very low stakes Mm -hmm. because they aren't trying to impress. They aren't trying to be profound. They aren't trying to be super clever. They just thought of something and they wrote it. They just let themselves onto the page and, and and, you know, Srini, that's, that's what I want to see. I want to see people's humanity. I want to see the way they struggle. I want to see the way they have made it in spite of the struggle, not erasing the struggle. And, and when people are willing to do that, when people are just willing to be weird, to take some risks, to get a little reckless, and knowing that they may fail and knowing that, that maybe nobody's listening and, and um, that – and that they're not that big of a deal, right? There's a certain playfulness that comes onto the page when people are that way. Um, that to me is unmistakable because, because so many of us are trying to, we're just trying to play it safe and we're trying to appeal to the widest audience possible. You know, we're trying to get the most numbers, the most likes, the most shares, the most this. And what I've learned is that I don't need the world to like me. I only, I need my audience to like me. Right. And that's enough. And, you know, I can close with this if, or we can chat more whatever, but, um, 
just really came into clear, you know, it became really clear to me in November, I was um, contacted by three arts entertainment and I was signed by a manager there. And, and one of the things that I've always felt sort of, you know, quote unquote ruined or, or, uh, you know, messed up my chances of really being rocketed into those like superpower people who have, you know, 80 gazillion followers. And, um, is that, I, my sense of humor is just kind of fucked up. Like I write really sarcastic things. I talk a lot of shit. If, if people, you know, I, I can't, uh, I, I, I can't not call out what I think is complete bullshit. And, and I, and I sort of do that in a, and I guess a, a sort of offensive way, although I'm never person, I'm never, um, I mean, when I write political posts and things uh, on race or gender or, or um, feminism, um, I, I, I get the the standard pushback, but when I write a, a comedy piece, you know, a satirical piece or a sarcastic piece, I get straight up death threats. I mean, that's the stuff that pisses people off. And I know that my sense of humor is kind of wacky and it's kind of jacked up. And so I knew that that was kind of one of the things that made me not palatable to a, to a wide, wide, wide audience. And then I was signed by three arts. Well, three arts produces, the office and the Mindy project and, but particularly the office, I have been obsessed with the office since I was, I mean, since it came out, I, I love that show so much. It makes me almost want to throw up. And, and now I'm part of the company that helped make that happen. So what I, and now there's all like really interesting projects happening, none of which I can talk about, but I'm working with my idols. I'm working with the people who, I mean, I'm not working with the staff of the office. Don't get me wrong. Right. My point is just, that connection, the whole, that, that they saw in my writing what they love too. And so I was, I was attracted to, and I was attracted by the people that needed to see me. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. And if I had changed that, if I had softened my voice or softened my sense of humor and gone more mainstream or gone more, you know, clean and vanilla, I would have obliterated finding my people. <laughs> and I never would have known that, right? I never would have known that there is so much power in just letting yourself be your fucked up self and letting it be enough and hoping something cool happens. Amazing. Uh, I think that just makes a a beautiful and and fitting way to wrap up our conversation. Uh, First, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming back to share all this with our listeners. This has been just mind-blowingly cool, uh, packed with, so much value and insight and just funny and insightful. Uh, where can people learn more about you? Oh, my blog, uh, Renegade Mothering. Yeah. Very cool. It's just renegademothering.com. And we write, I write about all kinds of stuff. And as I say, I've got some other projects happening that will be launched soon, but I can't talk about them yet. So. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I'm sure everybody's I, on the edge of their seats. Yeah. Well, I, I again, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for for coming back. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm so thrilled that we got to feature your story in our upcoming book. Uh, and thank you, you know, so much for, for a very good reason. I mean, based on on the conversation we just had. Uh, so again, thank you so much. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.